It's Learning to Listen with Quinn, Naomi, and Charlie. Hello, everyone. L2L Podcast. Learning to Listen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Today we are doing another Rolling Stone greatest of all time. Uh, that's right. We're talking about music and Goats. the way we listen to music. We're trying to engage with the music we listen to. We're all about the lost art of engaged listening. So that's why we're talking about albums and consuming the album as a whole artistic statement, the way artists intended. Uh, not a biography show. Maybe we'll learn a little bit something, something, something. But you always uh, got to learn a little bit. Maybe a little bit. You know, there is learning in the title, but uh, no, not a biography show. Instead, this is a pure guttural and visceral reaction to the music we are listening to. Right on, right on. My name is Quinn, Quinn Clark. I am your host. Uh, I've got my co-host with me, of course, as always, DJ Charlie Scream. Charlie Scream. <laughs> Woo. Okay, and uh, the number one original blockhead herself, Naomi Carmack. Naomi, how's it going? You sound like a whore. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finally, Full agreement, yeah. <laughs> I finally showed up for work, which wow. is yeah, look who say. it is. Yeah, look who was who was uh, marked absent. Not absent, tardy. Tardy hey, last time. I found my own replacement. If that's true. She did find a who replacement. That? Actually, yeah. you know what? That's part of being a professional in in especially in the music world is that you're supposed to be able to provide an alternate if you've uh, double booked yourself or what have you. Or cannot make it. Um, no, Greg did a great job as your stand-in last time. He was well, my fantastic. question question for you is have you still li- not listened to Access Boulder's Love? No, I have no interest in it. So, <laughs> no, I'm good. No interest. None inter- in no wow. interest. No. no interest. Here, he's one of the most important records of all time. Not interested. <laughs> I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't give a shit. Okay. Well, hey, I have good news. I listened to this album we're going to talk about today. This mm-hmm. album. Okay. Well, this album is going to be Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's the fourth studio album by American singer-songwriter Bruce Springsteen, released on June 2nd, 1978. The album marked the end of the three-year gap between albums brought on by contractual obligations and legal battling with former manager Mike Appel. <clears throat> Reviews for Darkness on the Edge of Town were overwhelmingly positive. Critics praised the maturity of the album's themes and lyrics. Uh, remains one of Springsteen's most highly regarded records by both fans and critics, and several of its songs have become staples of Springsteen's live performance. In mm-hmm. 2020, it ranked at number 91 on Rolling Stone's list of 500 greatest albums of all time, and that's what we're talking about. But before we talk about that, patreon.com slash learning to listen. Uh, make sure you head on down there. Check it out. You know, look around, see what you see, see if you like anything. Uh, and then uh, maybe uh, sign up, give us a couple bucks, and uh, you can uh, have all that shit for yourself. Patreon.com slash learning to listen. Episodes go out early. There's bonus content galore. Uh, yeah, that's where the real party is, guys. This is sometimes the, this we is... talk about juggalos. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talk about juggalos on this uh, on this this one in particular. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Patreon plug out of the way. Uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, like we said, number 91 on our list that we're working through right now. We're just doing the top 100 of the greatest albums of all time, according to Rolling Stone. So, guys, 
how aware of this album were you? Charlie, Very. I see a copy of it hanging out behind you right there. I've heard of it before. I got a copy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty aware. I would say that I'd heard it before, but I'd never really given it a, a deep listen. Okay. Even though you have a physical copy of it? Yeah. Like just a few spins here and there? Yeah. Just like throw it on in the background doing stuff. Not really like a big headphones on kind of thing before. Okay. Fair enough. Naomi, what about you? Uh, yeah, I've heard of it and I heard, well, I'm knowledgeable about the boss a little bit, you know, Jersey guy. I'm, I'm, I'm I've definitely heard of it, but I felt like most things I've heard of Bruce Springsteen happened after born in the USA. Yeah. So, well, no, it makes so this sense. was going back a bit for me. Yeah. Well, I figured, you know, uh, being a big fan of uh, the other big names from Jersey. This is another Jersey boy. He's kind of the original Jersey boy. Yeah. Something about these, about these guys from Jersey that, uh, that uh, people really, you know, are rabid, like the locals, the New Jerseyites, I don't know, New Jerseyans, whatever you call them. Yeah. (laughs) Or they really like, like to own their, their guys. Mm -hmm. Right. They're real proud of them. That's our guy. You know, this is, this is the boss as they call him. And, uh, and he yeah, represents he, the people. Yeah, the for class. sure. For sure. I, and I get that. Um, me, myself, obviously, you know, definitely super aware of Bruce Springsteen. To me, definitely, like when I grew up, uh, like I was a little kid when Born in the USA came out, but that seemed to dominate what I knew about Bruce Springsteen into like the 90s, until like maybe Philadelphia or something like that. To me, mm-hmm. you know, he's the Born in the USA guy. He's the dancing in the dark guy, right? <laughs> Wasn't totally, you know, I've got to admit something um, that Bruce Springsteen is not like, I'm, I'm not ignorant about Bruce Springsteen, but he's not somebody I've dug into his catalog that much. Right. I know the hits. I know a few of the things that I've heard here and there, but I've never been like, Ooh, I got to sit down and listen to a bunch of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I think a little bit of it has to do with the fact that even though, you know, I know he's highly respected. I know a lot of artists have, you know, looked up to him or sang his praises over the years. I know critics like him. I know he's got a rabid fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to me, he's always just been the guy that sings about cars, you know? <laughs> cars. And, well, yeah, he, he fucking sings about cars a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess he does. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a lot of, uh, I think he's telling, all, he's a big storyteller, in my opinion. Like, he sings a lot about people's, um woes you know well yeah and he's definitely a champion of like the blue collar working guy so i understand why he kind of romanticizes cars and stuff like that but just uh, coming up developing my taste in music knowing he's the guy who wrote like cadillac branch let's say right (laughs) yeah Yeah, a lot of people don't know that yeah well because around here especially the nitty-gritty dirt band version of cadillac ranch is like the definitive version of cadillac ranch Mm. i've you, you know, there's a couple other songs called Cadillac Ranch. There's one by Chris Ledoux that we talked about uh, some episodes ago. That's right. But uh, that's a totally different song. But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll bet you, you quiz most of your, you go to, go to, go to your next like redneck Alberta wedding. And when <laughs> Cadillac Ranch comes on and everybody gets to do the slap leather dance, because there's a line dance, very famous one. Uh, ask anybody who's still hanging out like, hey, you know, Bruce Springsteen wrote this song almost nobody's going to say, yeah, totally, of course. They're going to say, yeah, shut up, nerd, version. get out of my way. I'm line dancing. Exactly. They're going to slap <laughs> leather right past you. <laughs> anyway, so so 
other than the, the hits, other than, you know, what I've heard here and there, I'm actually kind of ignorant. Well, I shouldn't say ignorant. Uh, a little bit uh, uneducated on Bruce Springsteen's greater career or whatever. So I would say, I would say the first, sorry, I was just going to say that the first time I actually purchased anything by Bruce Springsteen, I've only done one since he put out a double album release in the early nineties, uh, lucky town and human touch. Did you ever hear any of those? Nope. Okay. No, well, I've probably paid more kinda. attention to the earlier stuff than the later stuff myself. Yeah. Yeah. So even so, earlier than that. Yeah. Yeah. So aware of this album for sure, because I've definitely heard people refer to it. I've heard songs off of it, but I've never sat down and listened to it. This is my first time. Nice. Mm. So, yeah, I, I feel like I don't say that too often. I mean, I guess like Drake and Missy Elliott, but right. the rest of them, I think have been like, oh, yeah, I've totally listened to it a whole bunch. This one is the ones that you would think I had listened to. I have not. I have not. So this was my uh, my first real sit down and listen to. And, you know, doing a little bit of research, not t- too much, because come on, <laughs> it's sort of podcast. We're not that kind of show, um, but a little bit, you know, and kind of starting to put some context of where this is in the greater scheme of things and realizing that this comes after Born to Run mm-hmm. and what a big, big, big record Born to Run was for Bruce Springsteen. Obviously, I know Born to Run. Like, I, sure. I've definitely listened to that whole album front to back. Um and that being the one that put him on the map as far as the mainstream is concerned, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, you know, kind of not like thinking, okay, I know Born to Run a little bit better. I know the context, not the context, but I know the the tone, the feeling of that record. Mm-hmm. And then being, okay, so this is the next record after that. What's this one? I'm like, oh, it's the same, but different. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's definitely a darker record i don't know if it's dark though i always hear it's that not I mean, dark. because the word darkness is in it but like this Here's- is an this is an angrier frustrated springsteen on this album mm-hmm. is my was my impression of it he seems like, to write lyrics that are sad frustrated whatever in major keys <laughs> like like it always sounds like happy music but he's like the lyrical content kind of um contrasts that yeah, well, I would say, okay, um, like the opening track, Badlands, was to me, in so many ways, it was very similar to Born to Run. I think it's like in a, it might, it might even be in the same key. I'm not totally sure. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like a mission statement where it's like it's a companion to a song like Born to Run. But then the theme of it is that you're stuck. So whereas Born to Run is like optimistic and like, we're going, we can't be stopped at all, you know, like... To the moon, baby. Those aren't the lyrics to Born to Run, by the way. Absolutely. That's what I'm singing at karaoke. <laughs> but I just mean the themes of it. <laughs> and then the very first song on uh, on Darkness on the Edge of Town is the song Badlands. And listening to the lyrics, immediately he's talking about how, yeah, it's stuck. It's, you know, it's like, here we were thinking we're going to be, you know, just traipsing over like the American landscape or whatever metaphor. And then this metaphor is about like how you know, we're stuck in this land, the badlands. What, what do you do with this land? You can't, you know, nothing grows here, that sort of thing. Well, I think that both albums, Born to Run and this one, are technically like about the same place, but just two different kind of people. Born to Run is the people who are getting the hell out of town. And then this one is the people who stayed in that town because they're stuck in that town. And that's why it's a darker tone is because it's they're just living their 
you know what you know they're just they're just trudging through their shitty live trying to make the best of it kind of thing very interesting take i like that well okay so charlie i kind of like i've known you to be more of the bruce springsteen fan so i'm kind of gonna look at you here as our like you know uh ipso facto de facto actually is probably the word i'm looking for expert let's do it (laughs) (laughs) okay um yeah so i don't know do you i obviously i read a few things but do you know about why this album was delayed for almost three years um i know that it was due to some uh, legal matters um i think so he did he finished born to run and it was a huge hit and uh I know, I know some facts about this one. Like, I know that he wrote somewhere between, like, some like fifty and seventy songs for this album in this in the writing period, and he recorded most of them, but only ten made it on the album. So obviously, mm-hmm. and then this is, I think, one of the first albums where the band, like, the, they were recording live off the floor, like whole band at a time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I can see that taking a hell of a lot more time than like coming in with a handful of songs you know if you keep he kept writing he kept writing you know and that at one point they i think this it was originally going to be put out called badlands was the name of the album and they had it all drafted up they had mock-ups of the cover and all that they were ready to go and then they were like "Eh, you know what it still needs more work so i can't remember if the actual legalities were because it was taking so long or because of something else but i know that there was a big legal legal battle for something i was gonna say because it had something to do with the his manager uh and him having a a a financial dispute and then falling out that preceded that and then of course like a legal battle over that like but Mm -hmm. i don't know specifics of it was it that mike appel was trying to cash in on the newfound success yeah I, i don't i i don't know that well to know the answer to that honestly for me uh what got me into springsteen stuff would have been right before this uh my my entry aside from him being the born uh being the, the born in the usa guy and all that kind of stuff would have been uh a bunch of years ago i stumbled upon a live album of his uh live at the hammersmith the, ha- the hammersmith odeon london 1975 yeah and that just blew my mind Checking which was like technically released like one. later than this right but it was like, it was, was released way later i think in the 80s was, sometime yeah but just it was the first time the band had ever gone over to europe for a tour uh for the born to run tour and they just like you know whatever however whatever nerves they had they just like let it all out on the stage and it was it's just an amazing performance right and you can go and check out the whole video of it which and that led me to to go and go through more like really listen to born to run and and uh east street shuffle and stuff like that so and then that's kind of like where i stopped so that's 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 why i have this album but i haven't really listened to it too much because you know i kind of got up to a point and i was like well that's magic right there well the reason i wanted to know uh is because i feel like the whole theme of this record is yeah being stuck and frustrated stuck Mm. yeah and uh and it just it it conveys a lot of that like there's definitely some not just frustration but like man adam raised a cane mm-hmm. it's got to be the angriest thing i've ever heard bruce springsteen do, do. <laughs> well right? i mean it, it, it can't hurt that he was in like a three-year legal battle right and you're kind of stuck doing this legal battle and it's it's frustrating as hell you just want to be able to making your art right Mm-hmm. So to, that's I'm sure that there's some pent up aggression and, and anger right there, right? Like, 
that finds its way into your next major recording, which is this album. Yeah, I just I just know that like I've having never listened to this record, I don't know if I've heard a version of Adam Raised the Cane anywhere else. Like this might be the first time I've heard this song. And that guitar where he's just banging away on his telecaster at the beginning of this song, like bang, 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 just relentlessly. And then he's singing it like angry and aggressively, like more mm-hmm. angry and aggressively than he sings anything else. I'm like, holy fuck, this is sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is if somebody had shown me this, like that's the thing nobody's ever gone you know to like oh yeah but have you listened to darkness at the edge of town like put that record on maybe give give side a a listen you'll probably get into it if you like it's angsty man there's like i could uh i could have like gotten into this as a teenager you know but for whatever reason nobody was playing me any springsteen at the time and i can also tell you that part of this album um some of his influences for this album was one half like legitimately the sex pistols and the punk aesthetic and the other half hard hitting, like, you know, classic country lyrics. Well, yeah. Having come out in 77, probably writing these songs for the three year period until it came out, that's Mm. right. in like the, you know, when punk was happening. Right. And being a dude from Jersey and being so close to New York and um, most of his career, like really starting in New York, he couldn't have not have been aware of what was happening. He must have been around to see some of these bands play or at least hear them get played, you know, mm-hmm. like, so mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I'm not saying this is a punk record by any means, but uh, I can see where you that, can the, you can hear, the, can hear influence, the influence for sure. For sure. Yeah. Especially on, like I said, Adam raised a cane. As soon as I heard that, I was like, Oh yeah, this is great. This is angsty as all fuck, you know? <laughs> so for this, this, for this listen through, I listened to it twice. Once I just had it on and I just had like, you know, while we were making dinner and eating dinner and all that kind of thing. And just the, the searing guitar, the solos, right. Just like, ah, so good. Right. And then this morning I threw it on, but just in my headphones to like really pay attention to what the actual songs to the actual songs. So, um, there's different layers because if you listen to, yeah, you can just listen to the Syrian guitars and stuff and it sounds angry and stuff, but then you throw the other, you know, then you hear the more, I guess, classic country kind of lyrics about living in a shitty Mm -hmm. town and you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's, there's so much frustration in there. <laughs> well, okay. So this is 100% the E Street Band. This is like a classic E Street Band lineup, right? You've yes. got Max Weinberg, Stephen Van Zandt, of course, Clarence Clemens, RIT on saxophone. And uh, I, I was going to ask you about that because I, is this, 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 you like this saxophone? Yes. I fucking is love it, Clarence Clemens. We talked about saxophone a few episodes ago. You weren't into that saxophone. You're into this I'm saxophone. I'm not an mm-hmm. anti saxophonist. I'm just, I, I like good saxophone and this is great saxophone. Yeah. Okay. It's appropriate. Like obviously Clarence Clemens is, uh, is, is great, but it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's me. I'm like, I, I don't, I could take or leave the saxophone in a lot of these songs. Hmm. You know, I get that there's an element of that personality though, that makes the E street band, the E street band. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I know that if it wasn't there, if I, you know, I'm sure like when he tours now, I don't know if he's got somebody sitting in on the saxophone or not. Right. Cause obviously Clarence Please, Clemens yeah. has passed. Yeah. But, uh, but this is a band full of personality too. It's, an right? amazing, it's a dream team of personality. Yeah. Yeah. These guys play with a lot of personality. Um, Another yeah, thing um, I noticed about the E street band is I feel like a lot of the songs, especially in their pre-choruses, it sounds like a Christmas song. It always feels <laughs> like it's Christmas. Hey, 
That is such a good point. You're right. Because they always go ahead. They always do those halftime breaks in the pre-choruses. Yeah. yeah. So it'll just be driving like on an E-chord, you know, for yeah. the verses. Breaks and right down to the pre-chorus halftime. pre-chorus is where the changes all happen. It's all fucking jingle bells. And it goes back to that driving chord or couple chord changes in the chorus, right? Yeah, you're totally right. Well, you know, I... Obviously, Bruce Springsteen writes hooks. He likes hooks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he'll make a the chorus. The whole chorus is is a, is just the hook, right? Mm-hmm. I I dig that. I, I write songs like that too. Sometimes you know, I'm like, fuck it. Yeah, but there's definitely. I wouldn't say if maybe it is a little bit of a formula that he uses. You know, well, um, y- yeah. And maybe. I'm talking from the musical side of things. Obviously, no, I know what you're talking about. Like he does shake things up here and there, but. But you can definitely see a through line from, you know, his career where like, especially when you listen to the great tits, you know, like the tempos will change, mm. rhythms will change. Um, but uh, but he does have that a, a certain kind of song structure to his writing for sure. Well, and I'm pretty sure uh, with Born to Run, they had like figured out the formula, right? Like there was like, this is it. This is it. but it was like a wall of sound as mm-hmm. well as like the, the way the structure was that. So they took that formula and they kind of tossed half of it out, a good half of it out with this album because it's a lot quieter, you know, like they got rid of the wall of sound aesthetic. So yeah, a lot less tambourines. <laughs> if you listen to uh, this, there's a song <clears throat> by Adam Sandler called Lonesome Kicker. Have you heard of it? I don't know that one. I don't know. No, He's essentially trying to write a Springsteen song. <laughs> follow the formula sure and it it pulls it off so yeah i think um i think there is a bit of a formula for sure oh for sure there is yeah um it's interesting though because okay so that context of this becoming after born to run which was the record that broke him to the mainstream right Mm -hmm. like being such a huge commercial hit and then he he winning i guess the uh the the right to have to have you know carte blanche over over the production of this album i you know i heard that some of that too was that he wanted to bring in his own producers he wanted to you know have a little more control that sort of thing um and then it ended up being steven van zandt who got a co-production credit on this because even though uh bruce you know had written the song but they would go in the studio and start working out the songs and then he just used uh little stevie as like a way to you know keep him in check and like it's mm-hmm. like okay you know what what's like what what can can we cut like the fat from these songs where what needs to go what what like should we add another chorus that sort of thing and he left a lot of those decisions up to to steven van zandt because i think he just wanted to put his head down and just express himself and he knew that he would kind of get lost in his own you know sure. process or whatever and then here's his most trusted confidant i guess at the time probably still to this day for all i know but you know his this other guy playing the guitar in the band going like yeah maybe we can lose a chorus maybe uh right. you know maybe we drop this up here we go to the solo a little earlier or whatever let's tighten these all up and by the end of the process he's been like man like you you pretty much are the co-producer of this album mm-hmm. and mm. gave so so there's more Stephen Van Zandt's personality coming through on this record too. Um, but also what's very interesting, and I think one of the things that has opened my eyes a little bit and made me realize why a lot of people do really respect um, Bruce Springsteen 
you know, other than being a good songwriter and a great performer and, you know, being a champion of the downtrodden and the blue collar worker and all that sort of stuff. But the fact that he was on top of the world, the biggest record of his career at that point, broken into the mainstream. And then the first thing he wants to do is make a non-commercial record. (laughs) You know, take, take that, like none of these songs were hits. I don't even think any of them broke the top 40. I think mm-hmm. one song like got close, but yet Badlands was a, is wasn't Badlands a pretty big hit? Um, I don't know. From what I was, I think reading, it's a well-known Bruce song. It's it's well, pretty well known, a, but no, I don't think either of the two main singles, uh, which are Badlands and Prove It All Night, reached the top. My, reached the top ten. They Prove It All like Night was my 40s. favorite. Was my favorite song on the album. Prove It All cool. Night, um, and I think it's because it's like. How do I describe this? It kind of just sounds like a pop song. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are poppy elements to all of these songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the most part. I mean, um, there's some softer ballads. So Bruce had his theory of the four corners, as he called it. Right. That you start Ooh. side A and side B with like the big, you know, uh, the big epic that's kind of like, you know, driving the album. And then you end each side with the more introspective uh, doesn't necessarily have to be the ballad, but it, it's got to be down tempo and, and more introspective lyrically and a little softer. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you get racing in the street, which is really interesting. It's a car song, <laughs> but uh, it's also like, it's funny to listen to the lyrics, you know, pay attention to the lyrics and realize that the lyrics have this weird uh, lamenting kind of like racing in the street. Like he's lamenting this idea of like the American hot rod culture, car culture. It's, 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 it's it, the lyrics sound like they should be celebrating it, but because the song is down tempo in nature, it, it's, it's like, it's like taking a beach boy song and doing it in a minor key almost, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I feel like, and I think I'd actually, I would say that racing in the street was probably, my favorite track off of this album through this, this listen through. Um, and I, f- I think that was the one where they were, he was talking about like, you know, the only time is when he's, when he's out driving and it's pedaled down to the floor. That's the only time you get a, a, a just a, just like a touch of a happiness of pure happiness kind of thing. Right. So, so basically racing in the street is just like, you know, trying to chase that feeling right trace that chase that dragon to, to to get that one just like sliver of freedom and and, and peace you know throughout well, your yeah and then that's why i'm like okay the, the this is where the car imagery works for me I, I i get the idea of like that he's aware that he's romanticizing this idea of like you know like cars kind of representing this is like new west idea like you know the way you put cowboys and horses together mm. well in his world where he grew up listening to rock and roll records or whatever and you know you have all the all the 50s and 60s idols singing about their little deuce coops and and you know like all their hot rods and stuff like that it's like that that's they're basically the new cowboy and this is like their horse right you know it's yeah, uh yeah, yeah. i i like in a similar way I'm, I'm catching more of his metaphor you know and it's subtle and i kind of appreciate that you know that if you miss it it's really that's the thing is it can seem a little bit um superficial when he's singing about cars but i, I now i'm in this song racing in the street in this in this version of him singing about cars i'm catching the 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 subtlety of the metaphor you know or at least that's what i'm i'm hearing sure. but i i just want to go back to my comment about um 
about intentionally making a non-commercial record. He, this record sold gangbusters. Yeah. And it was highly praised by critics and fans. This, I get it. This album is a more personal album. This is a personal album for him. This is a personal album for the fans. This is the personal album for everybody who was hoping that he wouldn't just make another Born to Run. Right. Right. You know, like, and just stick to the formula. Yeah. There is elements of the formula here because that's his sound. That's he's Bruce Springsteen. It's like, you know, he's going to write Bruce Springsteen songs, but he like, you know, but I, I think this kept them on a trend for a few years of making records a little closer to this, like the river and stuff like that, you know, which I've heard snippets of here and there, you know, it wouldn't be until 84, like we were talking about before where he made an over the top commercial record, which is born in the USA. Totally. Right. Mm. And then obviously that's another high point for him commercially. But I would say that you talk to Bruce Springsteen fans. And the only reason I was ever aware of this record is because I've heard people reference this record all the time. And I just wish that earlier than this, I had kind of gotten past the like, yeah, but he's the Cadillac Ranch guy. <laughs> you know? It's so cheesy. Like, he's the born in the USA guy. Oh, he's the so cheesy. The They're not bad songs. No, they're great songs. By any means. You know, but I only, I kind of only, I might enjoy them more on a superficial level if I enjoy them at all. Whereas I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there is a lot of depth to this guy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maybe I yeah. should check out more of these. You know? Maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe the saxophone was throwing me. <laughs> this is the opposite. You didn't like this saxophone. So you're like, nah, I want that other more hectic Iggy pop saxophone. I feel like I've come <laughs> around to the saxophone more recently. You know, I yeah. feel like to me, that saxophone just. Does it equate cheese to you? In a lot of cases. Yes. Because it's been used in a lot of cheese. Right? Thanks. Eighties movies. Well, not just movies, <laughs> but the eighties. <laughs> Thanks. The eighties. Yeah. The 80s, man. Yeah. Growing up in the 80s, you know, and just like the, the, in my brain, a shortcut to like just cheese is is like synth and saxophone. Oh, yeah. Mm. I love them. Right. Like the, and in the 80s, there was a lot of synth synth and saxophone. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm only coming around to some of that now. It's like how I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, experienced this but I remember when I was a kid, I was fed so much goddamn apple juice. Like every meal was apple juice at kindergarten. It was little cartons of apple juice. Lunchtime was apple juice. Grandma go to grandma's house. It was apple juice. You know what? I don't ever want to drink ever again. No more Hmm. apple juice. Apple juice. I do not have. I I think part of the reason I don't even like cider to this day. It's fucking apple juice. (laughs) I don't want want no apple juice. I'm over apple juice, man. Enough fucking apple juice in my life, you know? (laughs) So I heard enough synth and I heard enough saxophone and I didn't want to hear anymore. But you know what? I'm coming back around, coming back around. So I guess I'm into it. But yeah, what a, I don't know, just what an upstanding, cool move in a way. And I understand why people are like, I respect the fuck out of that guy. But because he had established himself so well with his fan base and mm. with his critics, they bought the record. They didn't have to hear it on the radio. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were just excited there was a Bruce Springsteen album. Right. And especially since they had waited at the time, three years is a long time to wait. You know, well, and I mean, it's it's not like you know, it's his fourth album, right? And Born to Run was the super smash hit, but also uh, the E Street Shuffle was it was not not terrible. At, and uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, right? Like those are still also good, uh, great albums, you know. <laughs> like so, you you've already kind of established yourself at one point to the point where you know if you're doing their if they're doing seventy six or seventy five, they're doing their first uh, 
tours of London and, and heading over to Europe, that means they've broken, you know, they're out, they're out there. Everybody's, everybody's digging it. So, I mean, they could have put out, if even if he had put out maybe a big, like more of a stinker of an album, it would still have sold some, you know, right. But luckily it was introspective and like still super amazing just on a completely different non-commercial level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I get it. Like that rabid fan base that he established back then that, you know, that they, they still show up to this day, you know? When, yeah. He's, he's one of those fandoms that like, if, if, if you're into Bruce, you're into Bruce, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. People follow him to the end, no matter what yeah. he does, they buy his records. And I, I, you know, I get it. And he, and it's been cool because he hasn't had to be overly commercial. Now, of course I would say born in the USA, he decided to dive back into that world. Um, you know, and those songs sound a little more superficial, but even those songs when examined, they're not as uh, on the nose as they appear at first. And, sure. you know, honestly, it's that kind of subtlety uh, of, of songwriting that I love, you know? Well, when you can, I mean, not play, but like when you can play both sides of people, the people who want just like a glossy pop hit, boom, you got mm-hmm. it. But also you want to dig in and get some more out of it. You can do that too. Same song. Okay, now here's a question for you guys. How badly did John Mellencamp want to be Bruce Bernstein? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Except, like, I think the mistake that John Mellencamp makes is he's a little too on the nose about, like, his small town blue-collar imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, you want it? Okay, in a small town where I'm writing this song, you know, like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Do you ever find that people seem to call Brian Adams Canadian Springsteen, which makes no sense to me at all? Because they're nothing uh, alike. Um hmm, I, I would say that before. Uh, yeah, you're yeah, I've you know what? Now that I mentioned Mellencamp though, now like they were contemporaries. I think Brian Adams' career even popped off a little bit before Mellencamp, right? Uh, I don't know about the timing. Uh, I know Brian Adams. Like, like when he cut, cuts like a knife. 83. 83 is when he was coming out with Cuts Like a Knife, and then 85 was Reckless. So You can still hear a little bit of the Christmas-sounding choruses in, in so, Cuts Like a Knife. This is what I'm going to say. <laughs> early, early, early Brian Adams, absolutely, for sure. Definitely inspired by Bruce Springsteen. I think mm. he may have moved away a little bit. Mm. Lyrically, not the same. No, lyrically totally different. Yeah. Um, but man, yeah, I could see like a like I could see like a dad rock festival. It's all like Brian Adams, Mellencamp, <laughs> you know, but like but like the headliner is Springsteen. Sure. Right? You know? Mm-hmm. Like cause he's the big daddy. He's the boss. <laughs> he's the boss, yeah. But like you could put like uh uh you could put fucking Tom Cochran on that list (laughs) like these guys i could see them as like springsteen disciples right yeah you know i would say if anybody stood out the most from that list i just made tom cochran with especially within like the red rider days Hmm. right but after red rider like a canadian uh prairie storyteller (laughs) i mean i've seen tom cochran play live and yeah man yeah yeah there's there's definitely a type, uh, you know, uh, that Springsteen inspired for sure. Okay, here's actually I just found this uh, 
in the darkness on the edge of town write up. Uh, it, they're saying that darkness on the edge of town perfected the heartland rock genre, which is uh, characterized by a straightforward, often roots musical style concerned with farmers, blue collar workers, truck drivers, the American life kind of thing. That's basically it right there. That's the, that's the casting crew, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the guys on farm aid who aren't Willie Nelson yeah. or country. Do we go back to that term Americana? Uh, you know, that's the thing with Americana is it's such a blanket term that, yeah, I can see how these guys definitely fit in because people who are, mm. are contemporary Americana, like a Jason Isbell, mm. you know, like there's a lot of similarity between Isbell and like Bruce Springsteen for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like did there, he's same sort of thing, uh, you know, like he's, singing about the stories and the struggles and things like that about more common blue collar types or whatever, but you know, but not making it like nationalistic or jingoistic at all. Like just, you know, like, like the real lives of, of, of people in these situations. Um, yeah, actually come to think of it, even, uh, Isabel's saying about cars a couple of times. (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's weird. Americana is one of those things where I don't. Sometimes I, I have a love hate w- with the concept because I'm like, well, isn't everything, all musical styles and genres that were kind of formulated, invented in the United States, technically Americana, right? In a way, right? Sure, like, sure, sure. what do we specifically mean by that? We're saying things that we're like, well, it doesn't sound like things sound right now, like. Yeah, it's. I think it's more about the music itself because you wouldn't call like although hip hop and rap were in, pretty much invented in the U.S., you wouldn't call that Americana, right? Right, exactly. So yeah, but it's at the time like contemporary. You would have just called Springsteen at the time. You would have just called him rock or hard rock or yeah. whatever, right? I think it was it was considered more hard rock when it came out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then moving forward, as you know, the genres of like heavy metal, like and punk rock and stuff like that, got heavier and harder. And you're looking at this, and you go, "Well, compared, this is kind of hard to call hard rock." No, it's Maybe just ACDC rock. is hard rock, but downgraded to just regular rock. Then this is just you know, but over <laughs> the years, it just becomes classic rock, and then classic rock, yeah, yeah. And then from there, it's like okay, but oh, you know, like re- retroactively, can we can we call them Americana? I, I actually, I like I like calling it Heartland hurt. Rock better than Americana. I, 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 this is the first yeah. time I've ever heard the term, but I like it for this. Well, just how many dividers are we going to put in the record store? That's all I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> once, like, it becomes, like, once it comes to the graveyard of classic rock, it's all just a broad spectrum. Well, okay, but I like I like when not necessarily going to a physical record store, but when you're like, say, allmusic.com or something like that, and you're like, I don't know, what's the sort of feel you're looking for right now? And you're like, well, I like this Springsteen album. They're like, well, maybe check out some more Heartland Rock. So you hit that button, and then it's just like, here's a list. And you're like, yes, that's what I wanted. You know, like. <laughs> I don't like it, you know, maybe not in a record store. It doesn't work as much, but on a, on a website or something where it's, where, where an algorithm is trying to figure you out. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. Um, I mean, okay. So E Street Band, Talented, I think we kind of talked about what it's about. It's about being stuck and feeling frustrated. And that makes a lot of sense for the situation at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, I, 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 I think it'll be interesting to look at the catalog and really see where he was at and how much like his personal situation really influenced the kind of writing he was doing. Cause I don't feel like he'd really try to remake born to run again. Right. Until, you know, he went even more commercial than born to run with, uh, 
uh, uh, born in the USA. USA. You go, which, he went, he went to full one side and then he kind of backed away from there and went full other side and then went for back to born to uh, born in the USA, went way, <laughs> he like blew past his, uh, his born to run commercialization. For sure. Um, any thoughts about the production other than we were talking about how, uh, little Stevie, um, uh, was ended up with a co-producing credit on this. Uh, I know that part of his art, legal arguments or whatever, something, his contractual contractual ar- arguments had to do with him wanting to get the kind of people he wanted to work with in the studio. Um, so John Lad- Landau was the producer. Um, you know, Jimmy John Landau uh, sounds what like else? Landis, the, 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 the movie director. Yeah, I feel like yeah, that's where I thought is is this is not the same person, correct? <laughs> no, um, no, he was. Uh, it's funny that uh, John Landau was the producer because he's. It's funny he's one of those guys who's actually a music critic, and um, yeah, <laughs> okay. uh, a, a manager. He like he's really involved. So I guess he just I don't know maybe uh, in this case Springsteen wanted somebody who really knew all the different aspects of music, like managing careers, uh, producing the music, even Mm -hmm. criticism, like, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to work on this thing. Um, Like you were saying, Charlie, it, 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 it's different for sure. I know the process in this one was definitely band in the studio, mm-hmm. banging the songs at the same time, doing takes and then maybe a little bit, but not much maybe tracking afterwards or whatever. Uh, you know, sonically what I was listening to sounded really good. Mm-hmm. You, you, it doesn't sound like everything's crowding. You hear the separation between the tracks. You can like kind of tune yourself into the different instruments. I would say if I have any criticism, um, and this is probably just uh, because of you know his singing style. I can't understand a fucking thing he's saying half the time. <laughs> <clears throat> kind of hard. And they to tell bury the vocal. If they, you know, I understand that he's a mumbly singer. Like, <laughs> okay, fine. If you're going to sing like that, I get it. You're expressing yourself. You're emoting. But bring the vocal up a little bit, so maybe I have a chance. You know, like I don't. There was just why the same thing was on the fucking Jimi Hendrix record. Why? Why are we burying the vocals? I don't think they don't have to be screaming hot way on top of everything else. Sure. But I mean, up where we can hear them, like where the guitars are, at the very least. Right. I don't know. Well, you I mean, guys that's something that I definitely appreciated over on listening to like the Hendrix record is the songs that were quieter, where his vocals were on top and easily like you know right out there and and mixed well where you could act where you could totally hear them but mm-hmm. i definitely get that and even that on this on this album too because there are some songs where it's just him and a couple of pianos or something right so mm-hmm. where where his voice is definitely on top whether he enunciates perfectly or not is another thing but uh yeah but, but yeah. he even grits his teeth when he when he whispers things you know I very much had trouble understanding what he was saying. Yes. And yeah, I was trying I to like, listen to the album while doing something else. And if I wasn't in the room, all I could hear was the music and not what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little frustrating. I don't know if there's remastered versions of this. I know that tons of box sets and things have been put out where maybe they've remixed them and put the vocals on top. But uh, Naomi, you, you're kind of the one who's a little more particular about vocals overall. Like, did you find that mm-hmm. detracted from the record? 
Like how did, did what did you like? No, I, know you just I, think that them, but... I think that the listening experience of the record has to be something that uh, you're listening with a lot more clarity. Like, like maybe headphones would have been a better choice for me than trying to do dishes. Oh, right. In order to hear that voice, because it was hard to follow what the story of the song was. And just for the reason you noted too, like, yeah, he's a mumbler. Well, it's funny. And it's not just you. Cause I was looking at like, you know, I, there was a couple of songs where there was a, a phrase or two that I didn't catch. So I was going along with some of the lyrics, like on some mm. websites and then seeing some comments of people who were trying to decipher the lyrics. And they're like, we're going all night from unintelligible. I don't know what he's saying. And then he says yeah. this line, what does he say there? So it, you know, it's pretty widespread, uh, uh, not able to decipher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was a little frustrated because my usual way of following along the lyrics is that I'll use the Apple music, um, app or whatever and then uh, they have an option to turn lyrics on right and mm. I assumed with Bruce Springsteen that they've all been transcribed been checked. <laughs> yeah. yeah so I you know hit I hit the little little icon that brings up the, the lyrics and the lyrics the, there was only lyrics for like three or four of the songs <laughs> you know and I'm like oh now you're gonna make me look for That's them it. and hunt them mm. I'm like I wish that I had I wish that I had like actually had the liner notes to like follow along. I, 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 I could have looked them up online, but I grabbed, I grabbed the record. Cause I was like, well, maybe they've got the lyrics printed in there. No, sir. Not no, the really. I've no. Got anyways. No, it's got a jacket and like, it's got an inside sleeve, like a proper one with printing on it and stuff, but it makes no, no sense lyrics. to me for, for, for a storyteller. It makes no sense. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if that's part of maybe even a little bit of the appeal is, uh, trying to, uh, you figure it out. Yeah, like having to dig into those lyrics to figure out listen exactly what it is. Harder. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe harder. if you just did your job and listened better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what do you guys think? Should uh, we find out what Rolling Stone had to say about it since sure. they uh, put it at number yes. 91 on their list? Brap, let's okay. do it. Okay. Let it let's do it. Um, so number 91, Bruce Springsteen, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Columbia, 1978. <clears throat> it starts with quotes. When I was making this particular album, I, I just had a specific thing in mind, Bruce Springsteen told Rolling Stone. It had to be just a relentless dot, 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 just a barrage of that particular thing. Okay. Mm. <laughs> just, it had to be that thing. Yeah, yeah. That he's, got, thing. he's better with words on, uh, you know, in, on record. His obsession on this album is a common one. How to go on living in a mean world when your youthful dreams have fallen apart. Springsteen sang with John Lennon-style fury, as he chronicled the working class dreams and despair of prove it all night and the promised land, as well as his, his definitive car song racing in the street after the youthful exuberance of born to run darkness was the first sound of Springsteen's hard one adult realism. Boom. Okay. 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 Um, I mean, yeah, I get it. I would say that I wouldn't know about the John Lennon style fury, that doesn't quite make all that much sense to me per se, but I understand what he means by relentless. Yeah. If you're talking about fury, like the, the, uh, the, the lyrics, the powerful delivery of the, of streets of fire, the lyrics there, I made that as a note. Like I was like, Holy shit, (laughs) that's powerful. The way just, just the delivery themselves. Like, I mean, the lyrics are great too, but yeah. I mean, I'll come back to, um, um, Adam raised a cane. Yeah, yeah, that too. I just yeah, the delivery of them and the guitar playing on that one, relentless. Well, and that's sure. one I'm kinda, thing. 
you know, kind of stuck there. I need to listen to this album a few more times and work <laughs> past that, even though it's the second song. In. For as great as the, we're talking about writing and everything like that, I mean the uh, the unique sound of of Springsteen's uh, hybrid Telecaster just fucking just destroys on this album. It's amazing. What's Very, a hybrid Telecaster? They say it, it it was like a Telecaster body, a '50s Telecaster body with. Um, uh, something like uh, some parts from like an Esquire, a 57 Esquire neck or something like that. Oh, okay. So it was that, he, bought it, he bought it as kind of a Franken guitar and then he had the same guitar and he just finally retired it a couple of years ago kind of thing. And, you know, just uh, something to do with the way the person who he bought it from, because he bought it used and it was originally set up so that they were like, so that you could record from all four pickups separate on separate tracks at the same time. So it was like a whole wiring mess on the inside kind of thing. Oh, no but way. then he okay. bought it and the person he bought it from gutted it out before he sold it to him and made it just kind of reverted it to classic Telecaster one in. So okay. there, so the result was that it was like a extremely light guitar, which kind of really helped get the, it's, it's un, super unique sound. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Well, what do you guys think? Does it deserve its ranking? Well, I mean, here's another fun tidbit about the Rolling Stone thing is in, in my copy, the, the 2012 version or the older version, it's, it's, one, it's number 150. So it's gone oh, so up it's moved way, way up. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is one of those, like, uh, one of those albums that's been reassessed time and time again, right? You know, like mm. people yeah. have revisited quite a bit. Um, I'm I'm interested to see what other Bruce Springsteen might be on this list. Like, does Born to Run come up later on this list? Would Born in the USA it is kind of an important record show up later in this list? I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> right now I'm comfortable with it being at uh, number ninety. I don't feel like it's like taking yet. that spot away from anything else or number ninety one. Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's precisely uh, what I was gonna say. Was yeah, I just wanted to know if this is the hot is the highest ranking Bruce album or not. It can't be because I wouldn't understand why they, this would be the one overborn to run. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's, I'm going to kind of like leave it there, but is it going to go into my collection? Charlie, you already have it. Obviously. Already got it. And I've you know what? I'll tell, of- I'll, but I'll tell you, I think I'll probably spin it more after this deeper dive into it. I'll be like, yeah, yeah. I, I want to hear that more. I'm throwing that on again, you know? Cool. Um, I don't Naomi, what about you? Are you uh you running down to HMV no, to get this on the I'm, two for fifteen couple, wall? A couple songs. I like a couple songs that I would keep in my uh catalog. Throw okay, them on more a playlist. Prove it all night for sure. More of a playlist. Yep. I can yep. respect I can respect that. Um I, I, I think I'm gonna add this to my collection at some point. Um, I think if anything, I'm definitely going to get more into this catalog. You know, mm. maybe I'll start with some of those live records just so have I you have you heard Hammersmith seventy five? Yeah, you've played it for me. Oh yeah, okay, good. okay, good. Because <laughs> he also followed that up with another like later era live album. I think there was a period in the eighties where he was kind of instead of putting out greatest hits albums, he was putting out these like, hey, here's a great set list we did back in the seventies. Here's a great set list we did like in the late seventies through the early eighties. You know? Right. That sort of thing. So I think maybe I'll start there as a good jumping off point to figure out. Well, here, here's another thing that would be interesting. And this is something that I'm going to do probably, you know, on my own time or whatever is uh, the later, a bunch later on. Cause like I said, he wrote like 50 or seven, 50 to 70 songs for this session, for this album. Um, and he recorded a bunch of them. Uh, and I think in the 2000s, 
2010 maybe he put out a box set or a double album called the promise and it's got a bunch of the other songs that like were for this session like maybe 20 of them at least and like well, a couple of different mixes and things an like interesting that. note um that uh it, that uh we should make on this is that because yes tons and tons of songs either fell by the wayside uh or made like onto like later records or whatever mm-hmm. you know maybe got further figured out in live sets he sold a bunch of these songs mm-hmm. to uh publishers and uh, you know a, a handful of them became big hits for, for other sure. people um i'm trying to remember mm. it specifically but uh Fire. because the night was one of them Fire. Oh, na- is that yeah, fire for the Nat- pointer sisters was because the night the one that natalie merchant did in the uh, unplugged for Ten Thousand maniacs uh it, i think it was because the night yeah. belongs to lovers that one patty smith yeah. did it so the patty smith version oh. the original version Got she it. she recorded that had a hit with it yeah fire me being another uh, one that i mean it's funny to think of uh bruce springsteen but he is that he's that writer he's kind of a prince in his way mm. you know how prince would ha- apparently supposedly just still to this day has this vault full of like demos and unrecorded songs and every occasionally gave a song to another artist that became a huge hit for them and launched their career totally yeah well nothing to make- you the difference is Prince had to make that choice because if you covered his song, he usually didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you have He'd have to choose you. Yeah. You don't choose well, him. Well, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know if Bruce is like, you know, keeps those opinions to himself or not. I'm sure we could look it up and be like, hey, what do you think of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's Cadillac Ranch? And you'd probably be like, I like the paycheck that shows up in my mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you everybody for hanging out with us and talking about uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town today. Um, before we move on, if you want to hang out with us on social media, see what we're going to be doing, see, you know, get, find out when new episodes drop and all that good stuff. We got a website. It's a one-stop shop for all of that stuff. Charlie, what is that website? Well, I'll tell you that that website is l2lpodcast.com. Right on, right on. And apparently the phone rang the other day and then somebody chickened out. If it was oh. you, just, come on. What, what were you going to say? Just spit it out. Just spit it out. All right. How rude. Use your word. Yeah. Rude. Yes. <laughs> we know. We know it was you. Yeah, you're listening right now. We're talking to you. All right. So you don't need to know this phone number, but everybody else does. Naomi, what is that phone number? That phone number is 780-851-8785. Hell yeah. And then what do you guys got going on that you want to plug? Charlie? Oh, you like this show? Can go get this show's merch at oldmandesign.com. You can get mugs. You can get t-shirts. You can get all kinds of fun things. Yeah. Some of that stuff can also be found at our website. That's right. Just go to l2lpodcast.com. And then Naomi, other than uh, making your plans for Blockhead Fest next year, what do you got going on? Uh, my podcast, Dope Nostalgia, next week. Uh, we got, or this week, we've got, uh, her name's Kim Sims. She had a big hit in the 90s called Too Blind to See It. So she's my special guest. Right on, right on, right on. Okay, and of course, patreon.com slash learning to listen. What is Blockhead Fest, you ask? What is the gathering of the blockheads? You want to know? <laughs> you got to go to patreon.com slash learning to listen. That's where episodes drop early. All kinds of bonus content. 
yeah, we put the episodes up mostly unedited and raw and uncut and all that stuff. So, you know, if you're into raw dogging, that's where we're doing it. Patreon.com <laughs> slash learning to listen. All right. Thank you everybody for hanging out with us today. You're our favorites. We love you very, very much. Um, you know, keep on keeping on. Uh, we're going to be talking. I think we should do this one. I think I'm into it, guys. Mm. I know I was trying to get to the bottom of the first 10 of our 100 list, but I'm like, I feel like we need a bargain bin episode. Uh oh. Yes. So I want to do possibly the best worst album of all time Uh or the worst best album of all time i think we should do the shags philosophy of the world the shags yeah do you guys know about this i don't know this oh okay then uh i've never listened to it but i know all about it it pops up sometimes on one of those uh you know those tumblr blogs of like awkward and weird album covers Mm -hmm. yeah so philosophy of the world the shags we're gonna do a bargain bin next um but uh so hang out find out when that episode's drop uh you know like subscribe everywhere you can that's what we're doing next week and uh in the immortal words of uh little stevie when bruce springsteen was writing a six minute opus in the studio for darkness at the edge of town hey hey boss wrap 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 it up Boom. The 1990s. The music was fun. And then it got really dark for a while, a little bit anti establishment. But the next thing you knew, it was totally fun again. So many artists came and went and left us wondering, what are they doing now? This podcast isn't about the heavy hitters who are still making millions. It's about everyone else. The ones whose careers didn't really leave that decade and kind of just still live in our memory. So you mean Vanilla Ice had another song? We all know what happened to Marky Mark. But what about the Funky Bunch? Who were the KLF? And why did Tammy Wynette record a song with an electro dance band that topped the charts? Two genres that specifically defined the 90s. What were freestyle and new jack swing all about? Did you know that Blossom star Joey Lawrence had a huge pop hit? Or that Alanis Morissette had a really hot pop career in Canada before Jagged Little Pill? Special guests will also be joining me to discuss the great era of glitter, grunge, thin eyebrows, hammer pants, and total ridiculousness. We're even setting up some interviews with some of the musicians that define the times. Okay, so if you're older than 30, you might be sitting here going, man, I totally remember that song, but I have no idea who does that. Well then, you better listen and find out. I'm Naomi Carmack host of the ultimate 90s podcast Dope Dope Nostalgia you're going to be busting a move again coming in early 2020 you want to follow us so that you know when we go live check out our twitter at Nostalgia Dope or you can find us on instagram at dope underscore nostalgia if you've got a question or you just want to be on the show email us at dope nostalgia podcast at gmail.com